0: hello and welcome to this new edition of navara fm i'm your host your crush your spirit animal ash Sarka, and today i am with the ever foxy at Piss penniless himself james butler
1: hi and
0: today we are joined by um my sister from another mr at bridget minimal hello poet writer journalist um
2: General scoundrel, general <laughs> scoundrel. I'll go with that. I'll go with general that. general
0: scoundrel. And also, we are joined by um, my new best friend, <laughs>
3: <laughs> um,
0: Joe Guthrie at Hello. the Auracle. Auracle? Uh, Oracle.
3: Oracle. Oracle. Um, with the three at the end, because somebody decided to go ahead and take the name before I joined Twitter. So, to that person, uh, when I find you, I just want to talk. I just want <laughs> to talk. I just want to talk. <laughs>
0: um so threats aside today we are talking (laughs) about trash cultures um what do i mean by trash cultures am i just saying pop culture and pop culture has been done to death so i'm calling it trash to make it more exciting perhaps but the thing that i really want to get into um It's trying to make connections between uh, the disposability of culture and the circulation of culture and potentially the disposability of lives. So we're talking about how is culture produced and circulated by people from, shall we say, marginalized subject positions. Um, The other thing that kind of really prompted me thinking about this is that it seems to me that uh, we millennials, as the press is want to call us,
2: not you, James. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oh, Oh. wow. (laughs) Not
0: even two
2: minutes. Well,
3: it's been fun, everybody. Um, (laughs) Oh, oh, RIP.
2: uh, We
0: millennials up to and including James Butler. (laughs) Uh, have a particular relationship to nostalgia, in particular, the culture of the late 90s and early 2000s. And this is something that I keep coming back to is um, this quite nice quote from Mark Fisher in an interview that he gave uh, talking about his book Ghosts of My Life, which is Frederick Jameson talked about the increasing prevalence of pastiche. But in those early days, of what we then called postmodernism pastiche was still noticeable as a style. Whereas now the quotation marks have disappeared. Appropriation is no longer signalled. It's just assumed, I think. So it's nostalgic compared to what? Given that there is nothing that marks out 21st century culture as belonging to the 21st century. So I was thinking about this, that nothing marks out the 21st century culture as belonging to the 21st century, except perhaps from our relationship to that which came before. And I've been thinking about the way in which um, online spaces are kind of dominated by kind of a return to and a compulsion to repeat uh things that we grew up um with in our childhoods so i do want to have an extended discussion of wrestlemania um in particular the ways in which uh you can't see but james is crossing himself <laughs> um particularly the ways in which i think uh this culture maybe has its finger on the pulse of right-wing populism better than high satire ever could, um, but not necessarily in a way that's knowing. And uh, before I hand over to James, because uh, he's very skeptical about this framing um, of the show, I got a text lo- quite late last night saying, just a word of warning, I'm gonna go full Adorno. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: okay. Like One of the things I... that
0: I do wanna say is that um, I'm quite committed to this discussion in a way that's really sincere, so I'm not trying to do this like contrast of like high theory, low culture in a way that's like snobby, mm. or you know, mm. there's like a kind of nudge and a wink, which is like, oh, we're talking about, you know, the culture of the proles, but making it inaccessible through high theory. And that's because we're really clever. Um, there's a there's a real guilelessness to how I want to be able to, to talk about these things today. Maybe I'm just uh, particularly emotional spoke in my hormonal cycle, but, you know, I just kind of want to tell you that I do really care about wrestling. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, handing over now, because that was really quite embarrassing. James. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, okay. I mean, I don't know how to follow that, really. I mean, I guess, like, there will be moments of today's show where I'm a bit out of my depth, and that's... And, and there will be some listeners who will assume that's because I kind of waft through the world in like some kind of rarefied total disconnection from so-called like low or trash culture or whatever. And I mean, that's not true, right? That's not true. I, uh, um, but to a certain extent, I can understand it. And I think, you know, we do have to talk about high culture at the same time we talk about these things and the struggles to own it and to speak its language and to make it speak our language. Um, and, and, okay, I, I will confess I, I'd never seen wrestling before. You Know the, this, um, but but how would
0: you describe wrestling, James?
1: Um, drag for straight people, um, like that's <laughs> that, that's um, yeah. that, that's what that's what I take from it. Um, like so that. accurate, but but so I'm accurate. I'm kind of I, I'm kind of hostile to some of the 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 pop culture stuff, sometimes the way that well, some of the ways that people talk about sort of trash culture, especially. I mean, and, and it's not snobbery, I think, it's recognition, I think. The, so for me, like a lot of our culture reinforces a, a kind of very narrow circumscription of intellectual boundaries. You know, it demands a kind of unseriousness. It demands that you have to like either either remain a child or like desire to be in a childlike state, kind of passive, kind of crawling away from difficulty and so on. But although I joke to you that I would go for Adorno, uh, I I kind of want to resist. There's there's a kind of like witless habit that kind of less Adorno, but followers of Adorno. Um, Theodore Adorno, for your listeners who don't know, is a kind of Frankfurt School philosopher, post-World War II, thinks about kind of the production of culture, the culture industry, stuff like that. Um, and and there, are, there are kind of the less Insightful followers of his who see kind of all popular culture and all the culture industry as just a kind of like numbing, pap, kind of comforting delusion, like bad symptom of the present time. That, I don't, that is not an interesting approach to me. That, that's not uh, uh, an interesting approach. I like kind of Raymond Williams's approach. He says, look, culture is ordinary, which is to say it's located in the cultural practice of like, the great mass of people and their modes of thinking about it, you know, as, as much as it is in the opera house or the theatre or the art house cinema. And that's good and that's important. I think that insight is really quite fundamental. I, I don't think it requires one to assume that all cultural projects are of equal depth and reward and actually you can be misled by demanding that, that popular or, or kind of mass culture does that. Um, but also that critical attention to them can tell us something about our time in our society. So for me, like Adorno's work, when he's in California and he's he writes an essay on like the astrology columns, he's like, "What is the ideology propagated by astrology columns?" I can see Ash is smiling at this one because uh, this is a, a, a the
0: a, one a, true a, science. <laughs> I believe but, I have got this this one. I
1: agree. <laughs> he's like, "Okay, well, what does this tell us about kind of the submission to abstract authority, the function of expertise, and kind of American capitalism?" So the question for me is partly are there modes of critical attention we can pay here that are important. So, you know, it, and that might also be asking, like, why are the heroes of, like, mass cultural products often adolescents or teenagers or children? You know, why, do, why do so many of these narratives share fantasies about kind of election, like being marked out as special, largely through kind of a, pa- you know, a passive narrative? Uh, you know, why is it that, that a particular kind of emotional openness is the mark of authenticity? These are all interesting questions to ask about mass culture. Uh, and we can ask other questions about the politics of response, too. You know, how, you know, you know the, the, the notion that the left sometimes has that consumers of mass culture are kind of utterly passive and, and don't have you know, the possibility of critical response. What I think is dangerous is, is a reading across of the political into the cultural in a kind of uncomplicated way, which sees a cultural object just as like the carrier wave for a particular kind of politics, you know, which either, you know, spells it out using you know, whatever uh, art form or uses the, the beauty of an art form to deceive people into believing your particular kind. And, and, you know, we've all seen bad political art, you know, like political poetry, the Tories are bad, I am sad, you know, etc. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> so
2: that's um, from my upcoming <laughs> collection. <laughs> uh, the You're bad, but maybe you're better than what we've got. <laughs> I was but, which to... I saw on Twitter, someone said that. Oh, anyway, oh, yeah.
1: But it requires it, it requires not only believing that you, you, the audience has no critical faculties, which mm. is never true. But it misses, like, the artwork as an artwork. And it's, a, you, know, it, you know, it's formal nature, it's preoccupation, it's, you know. Um, but anyway, you, can, you know, we can return to so this.
0: So why don't we leap into a specific?
1: Yeah. Mm. And the
0: specific is, I'm so sorry, James, but WrestleMania, which <laughs> um, prompted by a conversation with Joe on Sunday. I think it was uh, Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was Sunday. I hadn't slept for a really long time due Me to neither. work, not partying for once. Um, she says. I she says. Says. Encouraged to stay up and watch WrestleMania in this kind of—I um, don't know—it was like this moment of like supplication to nostalgia. It was that kind of thing of like I want to engage with this um, kind of cultural moment, which, like as a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was really striking about this WrestleMania was that many of the figures hadn't changed from the ones that I'd watched about 14 <clears> years <throat> ago or whatever. Um, and. I just want to say that I'm not doing anything like new or original in trying to read wrestling so one of the things that um, I uh, reacquainted myself with before doing the show was Roland Barthes um, The World of Wrestling in Mythologies and that's the kind of thing that um, I want to kind of um frame this discussion of wrestlemania with what um roland bart wrote was uh, wrestling above all is meant to portray a purely moral concept that of justice the idea of paying is essential to wrestling and the crowds give it to him means above all else make him pay there that this is therefore need to say an imminent justice the base of the action of the oh word i can't say because of ofcom villain the more delighted the public is by the blow which he justly receives in return And so thinking about, you know, well, not just uh, the presence of justice in wrestling or the obsession with justice, but uh, what are the aesthetics of justice in wrestling? This is something which has changed over time. So um, I'm going to tweet this from the Navarra account um, as soon as I stop talking, so please keep an eye if you're listening. The thing that I was utterly astonished by in this WrestleMania was Triple H's entrance. Did anyone catch it? Oh, yes. I
2: did, I did.
0: And... um, Obviously, I, you know, we're not gonna look to wrestling as the kind of perfect embodiment of like, you know, the works of bell hooks meets Judith Butler, right? <laughs> know. So we, we, know, <laughs> we know we're gonna see very unreconstructed notions of masculinity, but yeah. I'm just gonna describe uh, what it was that we saw. So we've got Triple H, the little video package before he comes out. Um, there's lots of stuff with like, you know, quite fash, like nordic hammers with like you know letters and runes kind of all over them like skulls with you know kind of ancient looking helmets on so there's a kind of um you know that's pop culture fascism or, you know, the kind of, like, uh, evocation of an ancient past that kind of runs through lots of uh, neo-Nazi imagery. And then he comes out on a motorbike with a white woman on the back of it, so this kind of Valkyrie figure. His wife. His wife. Indeed. Um, I was just like, white woman, wife, same thing. Uh." (laughs) Um, (laughs) Flanked by cops or, like, um, preceded by cops on motorbikes Mm. while, like, kind of, you know, metal blares out and he's got uh these elbow pads with like the iron cross like prominently all over it and i was like jesus christ this mm. is a particularly american form of like neo-nazi aesthetics and i thought well maybe we can explain this away because he's the he's the villain of this particular piece he's the heel Amazing. and then the guy who he was wrestling what was his name
3: uh seth rollins
0: that one um on his like little video package one of the main symbols that kept flashing up was the cross in a circle right so a neo-nazi symbol and if you're a graphic designer you know what these things mean Mm. and the thing that I'm gonna like kind of throw over to you guys now because I think we've been talking long enough um, is what is this normalizing or do we have to go one step beyond while this represents the kind of normalization of uh you know, white ethno-nationalism and neo-Nazism in American politics right now. Is this doing something kind of weird? Is there, you know a weird
2: layering of irony, or...? I, I, I don't think... I, personally, I don't think there's a weird level of uh, irony. Um, I should probably preface this with, uh, I don't watch wrestling now for various reasons, but mostly because uh, it makes me a little bit sad. My grandmother, who uh, came to, Ghana, to London from Ghana, for the first time in her life at, like, 90, uh, loved wrestling, was obsessed. <laughs> With watching white people fight, um, like it was, it was beyond her. She couldn't speak English, and she'd sit there and just go ooh 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 for ages. So every time I watch it, I weirdly think of my like dead grandmother, and I'm like, oh, that's really she'd love this. So rarely watch it now, um, but and I find that an interesting thing as well. Mm. Why this is a woman who did not leave her essentially the same like 20 mile radius until she was well in her 70s right um she came to the uk absolutely hated it they didn't want to let her in because i'll like, stay i was like she doesn't want to stay she's in her 90s she hates the cold <laughs> went back but still we'd send her tapes of people of wrestling and she was obsessed with the aesthetics of it of this sort of thing where the black where not only were black people not the villains but also it's, it's, very, it's very obvious justice, isn't it? His the bad guy, he's the good guy, they fight and it ends. And I wonder why that captured her attention. And all the people in her village absolutely loved it as well. They'd sit around and watch these videos we sent her. So I think that is almost a reflection on the, the aesthetics of it as a whole. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's an irony. I think it's just a very obvious courting of the crowd. Um, I think broadly uh w- you know we we know fashion symbols are just everywhere they're cropping up i'm yeah. i'm learning new fashion symbols every day which is a nice exciting thing i didn't think i'd be i'd be i'd be seeing in in 2017 but i am uh and i was reading a thing online that was just a list of symbols that you should recognize and i was like whoa i've seen that and i've seen that and i've seen that and i've seen Oh, i shouldn't have read this because now i'm just depressed at how many races mm. there are um and, and i don't know american sort of fashion American Nazis are always odd, aren't they? In The, inher- the inherent paradox whereby uh, the Nazis did not like you, right? It is just so ridiculous. I don't understand how any American... I mean, racism, obviously, is the reason, but I, I find it very bizarre that uh, every American Nazi is ignoring the fact that Nazis hated them and wanted to... Uh, Colonise isn't the word, is it? Uh, take over, you know? Uh, so that just... It, when you have that level of double think i don't think there's an irony there i think it's just a basic this is me this is us and i think the wrestlers are just paying off off of that
3: um, it's interesting that you mentioned the whole thing about um co-opting mm. and that's the biggest thing here i don't believe personally that triple h is 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 akin to somebody like David Duke or something like that. American fascism is something that is very, very particular. You know, American Mm -hmm. fascism is the clan American fascism, are slave owners, American fascism is, even if you want to go ahead and trace it back, back enough, um, British colonizers, that is that is like the precursor to American fascism. But a lot of the symbolism and stuff, they've co opted it from other sources. Mm -hmm. I think Triple H, in my heart of hearts as a toolbox and i always have done i loved dx um growing up i absolutely loved degeneration x and the reason mm. why and the reason why i loved mm. degeneration x is because they were so rebellious
1: mm.
3: it spoke to me because going through what i went through particularly with my father rebellion was something that really and truly was an outlet so to see these uh guys and the one uh the one woman who well for all intents and purposes was the was the best out of all of them china rest in peace um Okay. What, <laughs> what what I what I thought was is that like, okay, this has always been a case of what it's always been. I likened the whole Iron Cross thing to what PewDiePie did with his videos on YouTube when he dressed up as a Nazi and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is he racist? Probably, but it's gonna be a bit hard to prove. Is he a toolbox? Absolutely. That is blatantly obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one thing that I took from as James and I had an aside from my major issue was OPD rolling out in front of him. Mm. The motorcade Mm. there. That was my Mm. big issue. Uh, Because I can, as as I said to James, if I were in that audience, and I know my girlfriend was, um, she lives in Philly, and uh, she went to WrestleMania, it was her first Mania. She absolutely loved it. But Triple H has had better WrestleMania entrances, Mm. I will say that from the off. We're not counting the whole Terminator one, even though it was cool. (laughs) It was a blatant plug. And I'm not here for it, but...
0: (laughs) But do you think
2: that it made the fine art of wrestling tacky?
3: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Interesting. Yes, it did. It was just like, okay. Why
2: tacky? I'm curious. Because of the blatant, like, I don't know, James Bond style commercialism?
3: It's just like, okay, you could have, uh, we know that you you get ad revenue. We see that. But it's just, it's no different from when they do the, like, they've done KFC plugs and all that sort of stuff. Like, they got Dolph Ziggler to fight uh, The Miz dressed up in a chicken suit for KFC burger. I'm just like... You could be a bit more creative. So like, I'm did the chicken win or lose? What's the chicken bigger lost. Advert? <laughs> Um Dolph Ziggler dressed up as Colonel Sanders is just like, okay, okay, you definitely got paid for this, but could you make it less obvious? Because that's not what we're here to see. But the point being is that OPD rolling out. My time living in Orlando. No one trusts the police department. Mm -hmm. Absolutely Mm -hmm. no one. Not even white people. Yes, white people, you don't
1: trust them either. (laughs) Don't pretend (laughs) that you do. I mean, this to me was the most interesting thing about it, right, was Mm. the presence of the police. And this is kind of like, I just, it was jaw-dropping for me that that, that this was something that one would applaud, you know. And particularly, so, okay, like, so I don't know much about wrestling, (laughs) as has become very obvious. But... I, whether or not it's kind of explicitly fascist, whether or not it's playing with those aesthetics, what it certainly is, is a very, very highly masculine uh, uh, aesthetic, and very, very, you know, like deeply kind of authoritarian, right? Mm. And so, so this is you know the the you know the presence of the police, but the presence of the police not as kind of you know the fantasy of policing, right, as a kind of disembodied or kind of like entirely uh, disinterested. Uh, enforcer of a kind of transcendent and just law. It was the police as a phalanx accompanying a partisan who is going to go into a ring and fight. And to me, that's the social truth right mm-hmm. and that's an obvious social truth but it's also uh, terrifying to see it sort of affirmed so clearly and so you know and, and i don't know i don't know about wrestling audiences i, I don't know you know because so one of the reasons i said earlier that that wrestling is like drag for straight people is that i understand that there is an awareness of how constructed it is and how artificial it is mm-hmm. um, and that there is a there is a, a kind of degree of audience irony here um, and 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 a kind of deep investment in the aesthetics of it as well. But but I you know is this understood as a fantasy is it? and what kind of fantasy is it?
3: Okay. So you touched on the authoritarian thing, which there was a direct link there. Then part of the gimmick is that uh, Triple H and Stephanie, um, which is the woman that you saw on the back, they are actually married, but they have been doing this gimmick called the Authority, and basically um, they make a lot of. Kayfabe, though, Kayfabe basically is describing that they're making it seem real, but it's really not. It's all part of the act, it's all part of the pantomime, if you will. But they are, their pairing is called The Authority. And basically, they just make everybody's lives miserable um, if you don't do what they tell you to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Seth Rollins was at one point under The Authority's wing, um, and then they had a bit of infighting. And Seth Rollins has been on a vengeance mission to try and punish Triple H ever since um, because of what they've done to him. Um, they have effectively screwed him over, at least the way that they've written it into the whole mm-hmm. kayfabe nonsense. But that's that's what it is. So the whole authoritarian thing was... That was taken a step beyond with the whole um, OPD motorcade thing. And I was just like, okay, we know you're the authority, but... but
0: what does this say about you know kind of taking a step out of um the world of wrestling and i kind of think it's quite striking that um you know it calls itself like the universe right like the wwe WWE universe Mm, and like bart's essay is called the world of wrestling there's an understanding that we're stepping into a world of of uh images and 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 signifiers kind of interacting with each other but step out of that for a second because i think it's really interesting that you talked about you know how much your grandma loved wrestling, I'm thinking about more broadly, well, how is it that we, we as consumers of culture, right, we're not setting ourselves up as some kind of, you know, elitist, like, you know, kind of, apart from James, um, <laughs> you know, kind of um, elitist arbiters yeah. of like, what is or is not the culture, but what does it say about our own um, enjoyment of these cultural forms, which are kind of um, cir- circulating symbols, which are, are ones of violence against us? And on the other hand, like kind of comparing, say, uh, W, uh, WWE's use of these symbols to say Pepsi's kind of calling on resistance, protest, uh, fixing mm. racism with a with a terrible fizzy drink. Um, you know, what does this say about the kind of um, fault lines in politics that are kind of being played out in pop culture in a way which isn't necessarily that precise, but is certainly
2: emotive? You know. Well, I think. Um, I mean, the the violence. When it comes to the violence, I always have a problem with that. I'm someone who doesn't enjoy violence as a as a broad thing. Uh, The only reason I am, uh, even like naturally in my politics, like I am, Mm. I wish I could be an anarchist. I'm not. I don't wanna. I don't want fight and destruction and things to fall down. The reason my my politics have are moving towards that way is because I feel like I have to. Because there comes a point where nonviolence doesn't work. Yeah and that to me is the saddest realization i've had um from a young earnest teenager who felt a bit left to you know who i am today and you just realize over time that you have to move to that you have to go to that you have to take that step or else things won't change and every single resistant movement that's ever happened ever has never been solved without violence which is sad um but i do think there is a problem in the way we normalize violence in pop culture a lot of the time um and especially the things we choose the violence we choose to uh, hold up so we have things like shootouts all the time. I'm really obsessed with uh, cop dramas. I find it so interesting that I love cop dramas as someone who deeply hates cops, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been talking, I don't know what, what this means, but I've been talking with friends who are survivors of like sexual violence and loads of us watch these shows that like, I don't know, law and order style shows mm-hmm. where you have the cops and it, and I think it's because fundamentally as humans, we want, there to, we want things to last half an hour. We want things to last an hour. We want there to be a clear arc where the cops are good, where, or even if they're not good, they're flawed, right? right? But at the end of the episode, the survivor gets justice at the end. And that's why we like wrestling, because there is a winner. Like, people fight, and there is a final solution. So- what so- was the final solution? <laughs> <laughs> no, you
0: wanted to have oh the normalisation of the a little yeah. it just it crept God. in there. Like, Watch Triple H's, H's
2: entrance once. It's on the head, then... isn't it? Um, but, oh God, it's just coming out like Jesus. Um, but yeah, I think we just want Clear endings. You want there to be clear narrative story arcs. Um, The problem with our world is that there isn't that. You know, we keep on saying, "Oh God, we've started a new, a new like a new fascist like era," and it's like, did we ever end it? it? Did it ever? When did it begin? Did it like actually? The more I think about it, it's always been there, and and we go through cycles where things are more obvious. And it feels like things are maybe getting worse in inverted commas because we have the means to see how bad it's getting. We have the internet, we have media everywhere that even if the media is flawed and is telling stories badly, they're still telling the stories. And so for the first time in human history, we have access, anyone on this planet has access to a vast amount of knowledge that is very depressing. Uh, I'm
0: thinking about like, this kind of revival of something that was supposed to stay in the past, mm. right? fascism, neo-Nazism Nazi- oh, was supposed to stay in the past very much of the present. Does that not speak to how we disseminate culture now? So memes, right? Memes return to circulation and revive these cultural fragments that were meant to be thrown away. And, and that's precisely what memes are, they're fragments, they're kind of snapshots from something else and then yeah. humour is derived from their precise kind of dislocation and, and, and repurposing. And when you think about, um, and so my thinking here is informed by an article uh, that a very good friend of mine sent to me called Poor Meme Rich Meme, which was looking at meme production in relation to uh, essentially black epistemologies and saying that like because of um, the diasporic experience of blackness, that's why essentially Mm -hmm. black Twitter is so lit because there's a kind of uh, affinity between that form of circulation of knowledge and the experience of blackness. Mm. And, I th- and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that up to a point. And the reason why I'm saying it's up to a point is because where's been the most effective political mobilisation of memes is the alt-right. Yes. And isn't, it, isn't there a certain irony that the political formation that's made best use of the kind of placelessness of the internet and the kind of dislocation from a uh, specific location are in fact ethno-nationalists?
2: yes <laughs> um but sure i find that really interesting but also i feel like that comes from a a sense of you know that whole we've we've been scattered mentality mm. of ethno nationalists that we have been invaded and, mm. and w- we we are the ones who are who are dis- diasporic. You know, uh, um, does that make sense? It, it's, it does. This, it's this sort mm. of hurt feels basically about. Uh, that they have, I, I, I really think that a lot of these guys have diasporic feels in that they feel invaded, they feel colonized, and they feel scattered. And that's why I feel like it, it, it works for them in the same way it might work for black Twitter in the same way. Um, why does it work better? Is maybe. Does it work better, actually? Yeah, Is maybe I don't the question. I don't, don't think it does.
3: Know. I don't know about that myself because mm. from, from the. I was monitoring this from when well, when they adopted the name Gamergate. They've always uh they've always been around these types of these types of white male games. Can gamers.
0: you give us a bit of info on Gamergate?
3: Alright, oh so God. Gamergate is we're gonna we're gonna make this really brief. Because <laughs> Gamergate Because Gamergate is exhausting. Um basically what happened was um somebody called uh, Zoe Quinn was um I guess not it's it's hard for me to to say what exactly, hap- what exactly happened because all that happened was she was working on a game at the time called Depression Quest, and uh, there was somebody at I think it was Kotaku who was um, uh, one of the game journalists who were interviewing it. Her then a strained uh, her now a strained ex boyfriend um, was somehow in his feelings about this, um, and had decided that he was just going to go ahead and do a massive data dump about how his then girlfriend was cheating on him. That was never a thing. It come we came to find out, um, but he still doubled down on it. And essentially, all of the gaming's uh, white dudes and um, meninists, as if you will, decided to go on an absolute crusade and decide to say, you know what? We need better ethical standing in games journalism. I don't know why this is the flashpoint for mm-hmm. it, but this is how it started, and it cascaded into the into the politicization of. The gaming subculture mm, mm, and the mm. denizens of said subculture. Who politicized it? The right wing. Yeah, why? Because mm, they're getting old mm. and they need new blood. That's mm. the reason. I
1: why mean, there, I there is a there's an excellent podcast in the Navarra Archives um, hosted by mariam D'Shkovater, which discusses this stuff. Mm. Um, part of our video games in class week, or video <laughs> games in politics week. Can't remember what we called <laughs> it. Um, I, I guess like the, the stuff with the alt right and memes, like. I, I wonder if it's sometimes overplayed. Um, I, I don't think I don't think the right is successful in the United States because it has, you know, master of the memes of production. I, this is, you know, this is not. I, I, I mean, it, it may be a contributing factor. I don't think it's a, a major one, though. But but the psychology of the of the, the the sort of heavily memed kind of all right is, I think, interesting. And you know, the 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 the, the kind of that sense of I think what what Bridget was recognising as a, a kind of mirroring of diasporic rootlessness or, or, or uprootedness, uh, brings me back to the Mark Fisher quote with which you mm-hmm. opened. Because Mark's Mark's observation there is on one of the quite prosaic, right, which is that pastiche is the dominant mode of cultural production. And it's so dominant that its operations are now normalised, so we're primed. To understand it as kind of the consensus mode of, of aesthetic production, even, even when it, you, know, you, can't, you can't see it working. And by pastiche, we mean a kind of something that, is, uh, that takes and celebrates uh, a, a kind of historic form and, and maybe mushes them together, from an Italian word, which means a, a paste of kind of mixed vegetables. Um, and, and like all dominant generic forms, it can be really deadening, it can become kind of a constraint. And I think what's interesting, actually, in one of the things that Mark says in in that interview, in in that quote, actually, is that he moves from a kind of formal mode, i.e. pastiche, uh, and which is itself quite diverse, to a uh, discussion of technique which is like far wider and, and maybe maybe more diverse and less susceptible to, to his analysis, i.e. appropriation. So are all uses of appro- appropriation um, pastiche? No, not necessarily, because um, the unacknowledged quotation, illusion, mimicry, you know, ironized relation, those aren't pastiche. So it, it's, it's interesting to be precise about genre here. Um, but I have, and the reason I was thinking of this is I have a great deal of sympathy with Mark's argument because what I take to, to approach, I, I take that it's approaching the flattening characteristic of the contemporary, right? Um, that there is no uh, alterity, no otherness available uh, to, to Western cultural production, um, so, i.e. that there's no resistance to kind of the, the ability to take from anywhere. Um, so, 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 so everything contains the possibility of immediately being culturally synthesized. You know, everything is equally historically open to us, uh, and we might want to think why well, that's the case. Capitalism, mm-hmm. um, but also the subjective effects that it can produce. I like frictionlessness, evanescence. You know, the, the like worst kind of like liquid modernity. I like the the sense that there is nothing that you can hold uh, and, and and remain anchored to. And and the kind of pathological manifestation of this is is I think this kind of alt right culture. Um, there 's another line that 's interesting from frederick jameson who who is spurring mark 's thought in, in in that interview um, in his obituary of philip k dick who 's this amazing science fiction novelist like really really fascinating uh, uh, like leftist intellectuals really like him these days, but but that wasn 't always the case. Mm. Um, Uh, I just want to read it because it's quite interesting and and speaks to this, I think. Um, Consumer society, media society, the society of the spectacle, late capitalism, whatever one wants to call this moment, is striking in its loss of a sense of the historical past and historical futures. The incapacity to imagine historical difference, what Marcuse called the atrophy of the utopian imagination, is a far more significant pathological symptom of late capitalism than features like narcissism nostalgia art from american graffiti to Doctorow's otherwise fine novels testifies not to an interest in the past but rather to its transformation into sheer stereotypes even the lessons of older revolutionary theory and practice are often vitiated by historical nostalgia reds is a nostalgia film alas so i mean i think there's something here like that that pastiche which is nominally a celebration of the thing it appropriates but usually involves the loss of what makes it distinctive. It's assimilative and but one something that flattens its sources. And it's it's kind of a relentlessly positive mode, right? Like and instantly invariably a low one, right? I mean the, the um the horror of pastiche is like a key a part of sort of bourgeois critical uh, uh, orientation like so like often to a completely ridiculous degree um but, but it tends to kind of hypertrophy the, the the distinctive features of the thing it's kind of drawing on or responding to so here i think of like something like the the absurd architecture of the house of commons which is a kind of victorian gothic pastiche can compare to actually actually kind of the quite restrained historical examples it's drawing from so that hypertrophic thing is is i think also visible
0: or perhaps drake's relationship to grime and dancehall in terms of <laughs> A, <laughs> a, a hypertrophic uh, relationship yeah. to the like, yeah. theory that, that was, that was i
2: smooth. knew that was
0: coming up i mean thing is i was just like when can i but and i do yeah. want to discuss this because thinking about drake and mm. thinking about the um kinds of cultural production necessary to make drake happen and indeed not just drake but beyonce um who i actually do rate um I think is it's because Drake reminds me of like too many men who've texted me at like two in the morning being like, Hey you up
3: mm-hmm. like I'm just like yeah. I mean he made an entire song about that.
2: Right? I mean he,
0: many
3: he a song. Um, the I, think, yeah. I, think, oh, I think Marvin's room is probably the biggest oh, one though. Drake. I, but, but, I mean I wanna
0: Drake. I wanna pass it yeah. on to you because <laughs> because you you have written extensively on Drake. And and so I mean for our listeners who may pretend not to be familiar with drake because okay. um, i yeah. mean everyone is of um is so that he's kind of undergone uh i think quite a remarkable transformation and in terms of what his career strategy is and his relationship to other artists in particular um what ovo is for ovo is kind of um you know positions itself as a kind of curator of diasporic black cultures from Afrobeat to grime and kind of pulls it together and then you know I, I was thinking about this in relation to the corporatization of culture not through necessarily a business but through the actual body like corpus of Drake himself right and so thinking about these albums as being uh, a kind of uh, kind of mushing together of these different works and, mm-hmm. and sometimes it comes out through Drake in a way that's quite ridiculous and you know we can we can talk Talk about ways in which Drake is just a beg, right? So he's yeah. bought the rights to Top Boy, which is all about, delighted, like, delighted. you know,
2: shotting in East London, and it yeah. has like. I'm delighted by it. I, I cannot wait for uh, Drake and uh, you know I don't know who, who so like uh, Bash bash, bash going not say Bashy uh, Ashley Bennett. Ashley Thomas um, yeah the his room uh, uh, yeah I can't wait for them to be like I don't know talking about drugs or something on an estate. I think it's going to be great. Okay, Boy, it's no, but it's Drake a beg. I mean, yeah, but I, so. The thing, the thing about Drake, and for those who might not know, OVO, October's very own, is his sort of a collective, I would say, uh, that is producing music, uh, linking up artists. And it, Drake is the figurehead and, and set up and all of this. Um, but the thing about Drake is that he came at, he came at the perfect time mm. when people, people for a while have been grumbling about, you know, or for a long time were grumbling about uh, the United States' dominance over just pop pop rap, I guess. Mm. And he came at just the perfect time. I mean, he wasn't American, he is an American. I think that's something that's constantly glossed over. Mm. He's Canadian. And so he automatically has a step away and it's the first time really, uh, cause who else is on Drake's level? Not lyrically, I guess, but I mean, in terms of sales mm. and, um, uh, you know ratings just broadly from the general public maybe just Kendrick Lamar I can't think of anyone else he's like, the closest he's the closest mm. and Kendrick doesn't sell as much as Drake does no he doesn't you know Kendrick is not on Rihanna songs nope um, but then at the same time do uh, we want him to be? no 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 and Kendrick doesn't want to be and I think that's fine um, he was on a Taylor Swift song he was on Taylor Swift song but you know and and this is the only reason gonna... why the Taylor
3: Swift song was even any
2: good yeah and I remember when Kendrick was uh, was rating uh, Iggy Azalea I don't forget I do not forget um, <laughs> (laughs)
3: was part who was part of that wave it was T.I. obviously Lupe Fiasco was doing it
0: too when Lupe Fiasco did that I was like
3: cancelled because I was no no, there's no but
2: let's talk about the opposition between Drake and Kendrick in terms of authenticity I think Drake is more authentic than Kendrick I really do (gasps) because Drake is very obvious in terms of how ridiculous he is Drake knows what (laughs) he is doing I'm not saying I like listening to Drake more than Kendrick I think Kendrick is by far a better rapper but I do but like that's completely aside I think Kendrick truly believes that he is like a revolutionary and I think a lot of the time he can he does he makes fantastic music I think he says important stuff a lot of the time but he also is doing this sort of woke misogyny yes. that is very basic and I think Drake's misogyny in his music he knows what he's saying he knows how ridiculous he is when he's like you know you you used to go out all the time and uh, you're not out with me and i don't know who you're hanging out with and you know uh, we only met once and i love you but go away go away like i think drake knows exactly what he's saying whereas kendrick i think genuinely doesn't i think he believes he's there with his glasses and his cane rose and he's spreading the truth to the young black kings i don't think drake is deluded enough to think that way what
0: makes me sad is to see kendrick's lurch into didacticism it's because
2: depressing
0: what was wonderful about good kid mad city is mm. its embrace of dialogue fragment uh, questioning, and then you've got something like humble, where it's you know playing out the same old Lupe fiasco. Hey, have you ever considered not wearing any oh, makeup, <laughs> baby? <Maybe>. It's
2: very, <laughs> it's very yeah. basic. And you know, you've got a pretty girl who's very light, who's not very light skin, but she's you know ethnically ambiguous enough. She's she's not just black, which is what I keep on coming back to. It's like yeah, she's black, but there's there's being black, and there's and there's being just black.
3: That visual.
2: I am movie. just black, and no one's yeah. gonna get confused about about what or like are you mixed with this or whatever no but for uh, the girls in rap videos they often have that aesthetic if they are dark skinned at all or anything if they're not light skinned i should say they're often not just black they could be a bit this or a bit that and you know that's the kind of girl that kendrick is like take off your makeup girl i want to see your stretch marks and it's like "Mm, good for her good for you but then also at the same time i'm suspicious of of this need to to elevate rappers to uh, as I don't know hype men of wokeness like i i'm fine i'm fine to just listen to basic stuff like i'm fine to just not have not not be lectured i hate uh you know woke hip-hop i hate conscious rap i think it is often preachy and not very good um and if i wanted to listen to conscious rap there are plenty of conscious rappers right here in london that i could go and listen to i don't want to listen to that i want to listen to drake being a beg and i want to listen to kendrick when he's not talking about stretch marks and he's talking about i don't know something on his last album like that's okay um yeah I, i i just i just think this this ongoing need to to position our musicians and our rappers in particular, I'm not sure why rappers face, I do know why, because of racism, uh, why so many rappers face that scrutiny uh, that all other musicians don't. Um, You know, I read a really interesting thing a few weeks ago about Taylor Swift, who has gone, dead silent in the age of Trump dead uh, silent right Taylor Swift has the largest platform really maybe apart from someone like Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber who have also gone equally silent and won't comment politically why aren't we holding up their music as what are you being feminist are you being misogynist no one's talking about uh, that I mean people are just about talking about Ed Sheeran's basic misogyny in the same way that it, his misogyny is very similar to Drake's and that it's like uh, you know hey girl here you are but Drake is just better, I think, on a basic level.
1: It's,
3: it's parallel. There's, there's yeah. as as they often say, there's levels to this stuff. Um, <laughs> for me, we were talking about Humble last night, me and my mates. Um, and uh, so they, uh, one of them goes, in, well, did, what, so what's the controversy? I it's like, all right, let's finish listening to the song and then I'll quickly go through it because it's exhausting. Mm. So the song finished, I was like, all right, the whole point of women's liberation is that there is supposed to be a nuance there that is what needs to be there if a woman chooses to be photoshopped as kendrick said fine accept that that was her decision that's her agency don't get in the way of that if she wants to go out natural alicia keys for example when she did that whole stuff even though the no makeup look was a makeup look but we'll get into that some other time <laughs> basically if that's what she chooses to do that's the point but the point is focus on what she wants to do with her body because it's hers and everybody else just Leave it, like leave it out. Um, so they're, they're like, so they said, and it's all dudes there. So they're like, okay, I get that, but why would anybody complain about that? Mm. And it's like, well, that's the point. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's but- and that's where we, and that's where things got muddy. So that conversation, when I was on Twitter and everyone was talking about it, I just scrolled right by it because it's like mm. every everybody there was a salient point made, but now you're complaining because a salient point has been made. I don't really I understand
0: mean, it's that. so it's so played out. I think. On this point about words Taylor Swift or like why aren't mm. we talking about Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift or you know Justin Bieber in the same way that we talk about rap, I think it's fundamentally an acknowledgement that pop culture, in terms of its innovation moving and moving the form forward, has never come from those with social privilege, mm. really. Okay, who looks to Taylor Swift to like, you know, shift the culture forward, no one. And there's a connection between marginality and relevance. And that's why we talk about issues around co-option and appropriation in the way that we do.
2: Yeah, uh, I was just going to try and bring it back to appropriation, um, and I don't know who saw an article very recently that was just very silly uh, about calling Drake a cultural appropriator oh, for one, lots no, of the
3: one on the independent. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it was just
2: very. I mean, if you need to caveat your your point about uh, appropriating black working class culture with, by the way, I'm not black nor am I working class. Maybe put your laptop down and don't don't pitch that piece. <laughs> uh, just as a general, just, just as a a general, general, a general note. <laughs> if you need, if in the first paragraph you need to be like, by the way, I am none of these things, but I might get paid for this thing about working class culture, Life. but I'm not working class. Put, put, put it down, read a book, Stop listen to Drake, do something else. Stop um, <laughs> but I, 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 I do think, and I recently also read a piece that's a year old, actually, by a Idioma Ulo from the establishment about cultural appropriation she makes a really great point in that piece I really recommend looking it up Um, and she it's something like what we miss when we talk about cultural appropriation and it's that we forget about the power structures it's so easy to bring cultural appropriation conversations down to what do I not wear what do I not say Mm. what do I not sing and it's like that is pointless because really at the end of the day a white guy with dreadlocks standing next to me doesn't do much like for the power structure of racism doesn't make it better or worse for me in my everyday life. What we need to be asking instead is why do dreadlocks have such racist connotations and why? how do those affect mm. young black people? We need to be asking about the bigger, the wider structures. Mm. And so when someone is wearing a headdress at a festival, I don't care that much. What I care about is why do we have a culture where um, religious symbols for black and brown people are are co-opted in such an easy fashion. I care about why the people who are making these headdresses are not native people, right? I care about where the money is going and how... In, in a world or in a country where native people have the lowest life expectancy and can't get jobs and are discriminated against in a huge, huge way. The irony there that their religious symbols are being co-opted for money is disgusting. That is the conversation that we need to bring it back to. And so to call Drake a cultural appropriator is just, I don't know, I find it it's such a basic way to I go mean, with it. I I think it. it presents a challenge to,
0: I mean, for me, rather than it being about calling Drake an appropriator or not, mm-hmm. it presents an interesting challenge to the way in which we've been framing cultural appropriation. I think in the yeah. ways that you've been talking about, they're very, I, basic. very
1: basic,
0: and I do kind of find I have a certain squeamishness when we talk about cultural appropriation in a way that essentializes culture, and I think doesn't talk about diasporic relations and kind of you know the, the, the kind of
2: con, you know the the sharing aspect because yeah. I mean. i i I struggle find a a black or brown person over the age of 45 and try and talk to them about cultural appropriation i'm sorry because my mum does not care my mum loves it when she sees like a white girl in kente she thinks it's hilarious (laughs) like she thinks it's either hilarious or she's really flattered and she sees the difference as to when someone and i'm not gonna if my friend who's who's indian is getting married uh and I remember a friend was like, oh, my friend won't wear the sari I want her to wear. And she was really upset. And mm. I was like, God, come on, guys. Like- I mean, so
1: so this is really interesting to me because just the past few days, you know, I didn't go, but there was the opening party for the new queer British art exhibition mm. at the Tate mm. Britain. And I had friends who came away from it like, this is just disgusting. I can't, you know, I can't bear anything. And These are young friends, right? Who mm. like, I mean, it was disgusting because the launch party was full of like, you know, like, you know, well-to-do people in suits, giving each other kind of the glad hand, reach around mm. sort of, you know. Haven't we come so far, darling? Uh, and that kind of thing, like, is kind of sickening in itself. But then the, the display was so conservative, and they're like, you know, h- how how is it that that this is so lifeless? This is so dead. Like, and these people are kind of, you know, you know, giving themselves a round of applause for, for even putting this on. And then my friends who are kind of, you know, the older generation, are like, yeah, but we're in the Tate Britain. They're doing an exhibition about queer people. What like you don't understand that for me this is a you know so 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 it's it's amazing how, how that 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 same sort of generational difference moves uh, mm. moves across in, in relation to institutions.
0: But let's talk about the subversive potential of pop culture and its connection to uh, people who have pro- who who have a close proximity to social death, right? So when we talk about racialized people, we talk about, uh, you know, the reason why people were annoyed about the Pepsi thing was like, well, it took protests where the emotional affects is one of grief and rage and turned it into, eh, just give a cup of Pepsi, woo, joy, Mm. millennials do millennial things. I don't think the Pepsi advert is in itself that significant, but I think the emotions Mm, that that it tapped into were. And similarly thinking about um, queer cultures and, you know, um, proximity to social death is that we come back again and again to Paris's burning, especially with the kind of ever growing popularity of RuPaul's drag race amongst cishet people, right? Yeah, White that's cishet people. Weird. I, no, I mean,
2: they bloody love it.
1: No, no, know? no, I know. I'm kind of, I'm that was on board with a good with piece that, that came
2: out a couple of days ago about drag, and I've totally forgotten what it was called i will share it on twitter when i get a chance but Please it was do. it was great it was about uh just about that but exactly. we kind of forget about like you know the
0: that balls in the 80s being kind of like ephemeral right mm. this kind of you know temporary space set up and one of the things that's under attack from is like literally death right mm-hmm. like you know it's kind of at the, you know heart of um the aids crisis and also at the same time like um in terms of Paris' burning Venus extravaganza you're you're aware of the kind of violence subjected on uh, trans women of colour.
1: Yeah, I mean, the strain of AIDS runs through that film like really deeply. Angie Extravaganza, who's the drag mother of Venus mm. Extravaganza, who dies mm. in the film. Uh, I mean, it's a documentary, it's not a narrative film. Um, the, uh, she, she's shot in half light because she's, stopping, she's had to stop taking testosterone blockers because she's dying. Um, mm. So she's, her stubble is coming back anyway. Um, there's no, an amazing yeah. book by Sarah Schulman called The Gentrification of the Mind, which is a memoir of kind of uh, you know, what she calls the kind of uh, gentr- gentrification of the epidemic out of existence. Mm. It's an incredible passage where she says, you know, where is our national memorial? Where is our national day of mourning? Where is the responsibility? You know, mm. I, and so, you know, th- this, is, this is one of the things I think is is, is kind of huge. And, but then, so, you know, the thing about Paris burning as well is, is It's like the sheer joy of the film. Mm. There's this complex stuff around the film, complex stuff around Jenny Livingston, which I don't want to go into. But what I will say about the contemporary sort of upsurge of drag, and I say this is a queer person who's been around drag for a long time, including when drag was less fashionable than it is now, is that... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the, the, even the change in the makeup of, of that show, the RuPaul's Drag Race, is now you have these young kids who are who are pretty wealthy, actually, who have you know oh. a trust fund or who have a sugar daddy who's buying them all their drag. And you know, Paris's burning has an amazing sequence with with Freddie Pendarvis, mm. who's like who's who's all about you know how you steal your drag or how you know like, you mopping. steal your food mopping yeah. mopping 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 is stealing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and this is you know and so that that element of the of of that culture it, it, it tends to disappear and it's something that we should remember
2: yeah I just wanted to do a quick plug, I guess, for um, a film I saw that is being very lazily marketed as uh, Paris is Burning for the Modern Day. Um, It's called Kiki, Mm. and it's about Kiki balls in New York. Mm. But I I saw it when I was in New York a few months ago, and I absolutely adored it. It's an amazing film. Yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful. And I saw, uh, I had the the cast came out and did a QA, and they were just. And it was (laughs) weird because it was before the film, so I didn't know them. And then I got to know them and was like, I wish they had stayed. Mm. Um, But it's a great film. And I think the thing that it does really well is it, it addresses loads of the things that not not the is spending misses but it goes into things with in with hindsight obviously because it's just 20 30 years later it can see how hiv is still an epi- epidemic it can see how young communities of color it, it look it dissects um the differences uh for rich people and poor people and all the kids in the film they're poor they're they're in the bronx they 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 go and there's a scene where one of the uh uh like Drag Mums is going to buy shoes. And it's, it's it's just beautiful. It's a great film. Um, but you know, when it comes to the com- commodification of queer cultures, or even like any, any mm. marginalised cultures at the moment, everything is in vogue, you know, uh, to th- it, brands know that they need to be woke, right? Or they think they know that they need to, they need to be switched on, because mm. it's good. And And as we're slowly learning, or I think the media, the wider popular culture is learning that uh, the controversy surrounding not being woke. Woke is just—I don't know. I'm using it as a very casual term, but I think everyone knows what I mean. It, it's not profitable, and so you know, Ghost in the Shell tanked, mm. right? Because uh, so even if it was the best film that's ever come out, it just wasn't going to do well because Twitter was like, "We're not going to go and see it." Um, the invisible
0: hand of the market, yeah, just,
2: yeah, and and so and so now you get brands like Pepsi being like, mm, "Let's try and 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 tap mm. into this," and I'm what i'm worried about to be honest more is in the next five years where they've got better at it and it's harder to identify
1: mm. it's just for me the the, the thing that's interesting at the moment is the question of subculture and its relationship to, to to mainstream culture because like everything is mainstream culture these days i mean but but the thing that has occurred to me really over the past couple of years is 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 the material basis of subcultures right like mm. and for me this is partly the closure, closure of venues in London like I think there are maybe two places that I would have gone to when I was like 14, 15 and you know young queer kid that are still around most of them are gone but it's not just queer spaces right it's, it's, m- it's like many other kinds. Of... when you were 14, 15? <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah back in the 18th century hey. um, but you know like the, uh, and I, but I don't just say <laughs> <I'm> so <sorry. laughs> but I say you are so dark oh, uh, I, I mean it kind I'm of I'm trying but, you know, to hold like, the, but hey, <laughs> but, 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 hey you like, like hey the thing now, young yeah. no. <laughs> <The, the>, the... <laughs> But, but, you know, like it's not just bars, right? It was mm-hmm. like the kind of ecology of kind of squatted or semi-legal places as well. Those places that could exist on the margins of the city, which were open for kind of sort of marginal or subversive or just plain experimental attempts at culture and living. And it's not, they weren't like the beyond and end all of the world, but you know they're, they're important. Mm-hmm. But we believed at the time that like the marginality of these spaces and marginality of the city in these spaces was something that was a given, right? There would be a permanent feature of the city that these places would always be there. Um, you know, like, and we were just wrong, right? We were just wrong. In fact, a very constrained phase in the city's development, oh. and it's now taken a whole other direction. I mean, the descendants of those spaces kind of still exist, but they're very different and they, they, they lack the kind of marginality that they once did. And it tells me that these, these you know, subcultures or like these interesting cultures or these kind of resistant cultures have material bases. They're, they're also about being in person, right? And they're not just about pure mediation, online mediation, stuff like that. And they're never quite disconnected from the mainstream, right? They operate in tandem to it and they operate in conversation with it. And these days you know like and they are always in a process of always already kind of being subsumed into the mainstream right like mm. and like right the desire of people in those spaces not always to like live in marginality mm. uh, and it's one of the things that's one of the big contradictions in kind of queer culture is like whether you, you know how you negotiate th- those two those two spaces and it's it's a difficult one
2: I mean
0: we're keeping our conversations pretty much uh bounded to the global north. And this is, um, I was on a panel uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Mark Leckie, Matt Dryhurst, Geiger and warren ellis and we're discussing our subcultures do subcultures still exist and i was like well hang on and as much as we're talking about race and we're talking about positions of marginality we're not escaping the west it's Mm. like we have subcultures other places have culture they have monocultures which we pick and choose from and kind of integrate into our own sense of subculture and so while we are even talking about proximity to uh social death even though we're talking about people who are racialized we're not talking about uh the kind of precarious conditions of migration and the transmission of culture across borders at this particular juncture in history. And, and it almost feels that even though we're beset with images of precarious migration, we have no idea of what kind of culture is carried with it. So even kind of within our very like woke analysis of culture, like there are these uh, exclusions. Um, so we've got about four minutes left and I just kind of want to hand over to the guests to like sum up. Um, Trash cultures, radical potential or nah, I
3: guess. Bridget? Oh. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) I think trash cultures can be as radical as the rest of us are, which is often not very much. Um, I think it, I I personally love uh, overanalyzing, and I and I and I specify overanalyzing because often it's just not that deep, but I enjoy it, and I think it's fun. Whether it's useful for the movement, I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting, and I think that shouldn't be sniffed at either. Um, it's it's easier for me and for many people, I think, to cope with how awful things are in the world when we. Uh, overanalyze the sort of less important things right and yeah i don't think that should be sniffed at i think it's possible to think about more than one thing at once mate um i'm allowed and we're all allowed to to look at those things and 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 to look at drake's album or pepsi adverts and uh, maybe not get outraged but uh overanalyze them but at the same time i do think it's important to to recognize the that it can just not be that important that we can just blindly enjoy something yeah. while acknowledging it's I hate this word problematic right <laughs> just acknowledging that I can just acknowledge that and still enjoy wrestling mm. with Nazi symbols perhaps or whatever oh yeah um, and I think it's I think knowing those knowing all these things to be true is fine okay.
3: That's uh, I, I, I largely concur with Bridget. I think the main thing is, is that a lot of the people that complain about the analysis of the things that we enjoy are really and truly in context demanding that we just be complacent and shut up and watch it. And the answer that I have for them is no. Mm. the answer is no I'm yeah, mildly
2: angry as well exactly you know it's that mm-hmm. who set in. Uh, you know if my anger is a distraction it's like yeah I, my anger is always a distraction so I'd rather just not be angry and, and be interested the yes. question
0: I've <laughs> is, is your hate pure I think of myself as someone who's guided by a very pure form of hatred oh. um, James any final thoughts about like
1: yeah that? no I just I'm reminded of the Peter of line. Klein you know about those wonderful Berlin cabarets which did so much to stop the rise of Hitler and prevent the outbreak of the second <laughs> world war I mean so that's it like I mean, you've got to think of <laughs> Yeah, that way. The only thing, other thing I would say is, like, remember that the tones of pop culture also change, right? And I just remember the optimist vein in pop culture in the late 90s, early noughties. You know, conspiracy theories were even better. Genderless aliens want to reach out and touch your inner consciousness with electronic chaos magic, and the only thing stopping mm. them Sexy. is the government.
0: <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for listening I um, thank you for joining us I've had a great time um, if you enjoyed this show why not give us money Support.navara.media.com. was that clunky? <laughs> yes it nope. was make it rain okay. make hey, it give it rain. me money I'll make no. it more sophisticated <laughs> make it rain um, thanks it so rain. much for listening same time same place next week bye
1: this show is brought to you by Novara Media to find articles, videos and more audio
3: content like this head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would
1: encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.novaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra
3: Media. Media for a different politics.